0: get the chance to introduce a friend, and you probably don't get an introduction next time you come, but uh, my friend and friend of the church, Charlene Brown, um, is our guest preacher today, and Charlene has been in Durham for quite a while, and before that was in Charlottesville uh, as an UVA alum. She's also a Duke Divinity alum, and um, and is currently the National Director for Black Student Ministries for InterVarsity, um, which is in uh, uh, national uh, parachurch organization that we're also connected to through Stephanie Holmer and her work at Duke. I'm really uh, excited to welcome Charlene. We had her in August, uh, and she joined in on our Philippians series, and you can go back and listen to that as well. Uh, but uh, Charlene, when when I asked her to come, she said, it's really an honor to be invited, and, and it's even better to be invited back. So uh it, Give, give her a round of applause as, as we invite her back. All
1: right, good morning, Oak Church. Hi. All right, can you guys hear me if I'm not holding this mic? Okay. Um, I love, love, love getting to be with y'all. And before I jump in, I wanted to thank Chris, for the invitation this morning. Uh, So my name is Charlene Brown. I've lived mostly in Durham uh, since 2008 with a short stint in Charlottesville. And so this is home to me. Uh, I get to, I currently serve as the national director for InterVarsity's Black Campus Ministries, uh, and I get to help staff envision and develop strategies uh, that make sure that every black student who sets foot on a college campus gets to have an encounter with Jesus. And college ministry has a special place in my heart because it's the place that God used to draw me towards a vision of the kingdom. It's the place that I decided to follow Jesus. Now, I love that in this season of my life, I get to reflect on and use the lessons that I learned from this critical era of my journey, and I get to use it to help shape the next generation of leaders and world changers. Now, like Chris said, I was here in August and I think I was supposed to be here in January, but something happened. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to discourage anyone who has ambitions for learning how to roller skate, but it is hard and it is dangerous. (laughs) So I went roller skating, I think it was like the weekend before. I made it about 45 minutes uh, with some bruises, but no serious injuries, hashtag winning, right? And as we were about to leave the rink, I was kind of scooting my way to a bench and I fell backwards and hit my head on the ground. Uh, 24 hours later, I was in the emergency room with a serious concussion. So one of the worst feelings in the world is to call your pastor friend who thinks that they have the week off and say, hey man, I can't make it uh, to preach because I have a concussion. So, brother, I'm sorry (laughs) and grateful that you would ask again. Well, let's jump into our text. I think Kate is supposed to read John 5, 1 through 15.
2: After this, there was a Jewish festival, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate in the north city wall, is a pool with the Aramaic name Bethsaida. It had five covered porches and a crowd of people who were sick blind, lame, and paralyzed, sat there. A certain man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, knowing that he had already been there a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I don't have anyone who can put me in the water when it is stirred up. When I'm trying to get to it, someone else has gotten in ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Immediately the man was well, and he picked up his mat and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. You aren't allowed to carry your mat. He answered, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. They inquired, Who is this man who said to you, Pick it up and walk? The man who had been cured didn't know who it was, because Jesus had slipped away from the crowd gathered there. Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you have been made well. Don't sin anymore in case something worse happens to you. The man went and proclaimed to the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the man who had made him well. The word of God to the people of God. All right, let's pray. Lord,
1: this morning, this service, these people, we are yours. that you would say what you need to say through me, and that you would do what you need to do in us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. So we've all probably been in a place of hopelessness at one point or another. Moments when we know that something needs to change, but we don't know exactly what. Moments when we feel like we're just hanging on by a thread. Moments that keep us wondering, what is this all for? All we know is that we're waiting for something to give, we're waiting for something to change, and sometimes it feels like we've exhausted all the hope that we have. When I read the story about the man at at Bethesda, I'm I'm struck by what feels like hopelessness. I picture him 38 years ago eagerly waiting by the water, for it to be stirred by an angel, patiently sitting on his mat and waiting to catch a glimpse of his healing. Then one year passes, then five year passes, then 10 years, and then 38 years. For 38 years, he's been waiting and hoping for this miracle. He's been sitting by the pool, waiting and hoping that someone will come along at the right moment and help him get into this body of water. Now, I can imagine how quickly hope disintegrates over time. When I'm desperate, I often feel like my hope is limited. The more time that goes by, the more I start to accept the way that things are and that they'll never change. I'm not very good at hoping because I'm afraid of what it means to be disappointed. I'm afraid that it feels like wishful thinking. I'm afraid that maybe God doesn't see me that God doesn't care enough to intervene. So instead of hoping, I accept things as they are. I've actually taught myself that it's better to look like you have hope than to actually hope. It's a coping mechanism and it works, keeps me from being hurt. I don't know if you've ever felt this kind of desperation before when you've been waiting on something. Maybe you've been waiting to experience some kind of healing for you or someone in your family. Maybe you're facing the worst kind of obstacle in your life. Maybe you've been on the job market for months, maybe years, and can't seem to catch a break, right? Maybe like me, every time you turn on the news or reach for the paper, or I I don't read the paper, reach for an app (laughs) and check the news, The hopeless just slides in, and all I know how to say is, come, Lord Jesus, come. And I say that because that's what good Christians are supposed to say. Or maybe you've been hoping and praying, trying to have a baby with no success, right? Maybe you're single, and you're longing to be in a relationship. Maybe you've been praying for a job that that is satisfying and that uses your gifts and your talents, What are the things that you are hoping for, longing for, and still waiting for? Are there things that you are afraid to hope for because you're afraid of disappointment? Are you afraid to put words to the longings of your heart? So just think for a moment, what is that thing for you? As I was studying this passage and reading over John 5, there was a poem that kept coming to mind, and that poem was Langston Hughes' Dream Deferred. So I am going to read it for us this morning. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy treat? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? Dreams deferred make the heart sick, right? That's what Proverbs talks about. Desperation and hope go together, but over time there's only so long that we can sustain the hope that our hearts long for. When you hope for a while and your circumstance doesn't change, other questions start to come up, right? We seem to move from waiting for the thing to asking deeper questions about whether we matter enough to others or whether we matter enough to God. You go from why aren't I being healed to does anyone see me? Does anyone notice me? Does anyone care? Am I worthy? I'll tell you guys a little, a little story about myself. I feel like I'm being really transparent this morning. But what am I not, right? Uh, most times. Uh, so uh, by the time I was 13 years old, uh, d- depression had kind of been, had become this kind of normal mode of operation for me. I grew up with a single dad who worked 18 hours and was pretty unavailable to us. Uh, my dad also did not believe in therapy or counseling. and uh, My mom passed away when I was uh, two years old or so, and he just hadn't dealt with that or helped us to deal with it. I used to joke that my dad's love language, if you've read Gary Chapman's five love languages, I think that there's a six. We used to joke that his love language was anger because that was his way of expressing love for us. And by the time I was in college, I had struggled with depression for about eight years and had unsuccessfully attempted to take my life five times. Uh, Everything felt hopeless. Everything about Uh, my upbringing had felt hopeless, and I got to college thinking, nothing can or will ever change. I spent so much time wondering and waiting for a sign that I was someone who was seen. I've never felt such desperation and hopelessness in my life before, right? Hopelessness had become my norm, and it, it had become the thing that I clung to and made excuses for. It was comfortable. When I think about this man who was sitting by the pole, I think about all of the details that John doesn't give us, right? He's been sitting at this pole, he's hopeless, and day after day, nothing changes. But I think similar to to him, I felt this, right? Jesus sees us in the moments when we feel unseen. So here we have, Jesus happens to be walking by, and kind of a side note, uh, This pool of Bethesda was kind of under street level. So Jesus would be walking by, maybe above street, and something about him walking by this place makes him go down to this pool, right? So he walks down, it's not like a through street, he actually has to go there, right? So there's an interruption in the story. The passage says when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been there in this condition for such a long time, he asked him, do you want to be well? It always strikes me that Jesus sees people. He doesn't just give a cursory glance, but he sees them and says, I know you, right? I know you deep inside. When he sees them, even at their worst, scripture always says he moves towards them. As if to say, I'm not afraid of your questions. I'm not afraid of your mess. I'm not afraid of your junk. Do you want to get well? Feels like a simple question, but the man doesn't give a straightforward, simple answer. Instead, he says to Jesus, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else always gets ahead of me. Now, as I was reading this, I kind of wanted to scream like, the answer is yes, you want to be healed. Stop whining, stop giving Jesus excuses and say, yeah, I'd like to be healed, right? And then I sat in the passage a little longer because I think what he's doing is giving voice to some of the deep questions he's been asking. Does anyone care? Does anyone see me? Does anyone notice me? And can I receive this healing? Now, can you imagine that after 38 years of being sick and suffering, the kind of mental anguish and shame and humiliation that that breeds, right? That he's always close, but never close enough. Imagine the daily disappointment and a bucket of hope filled with lots of holes. It feels like he's too afraid to hope that something could actually be different, too afraid to believe that he is seen, that he is noticed, and that someone might actually care. When you think about the thing that you hope for or long for, what are the deep questions that it raises for you? Does God see you? Does God care about you? Does God even notice where you are? This passage says that there's hope even when we don't have anything left in the tank. It says that there is a God who sees us and moves towards us and who is unafraid. It says that Jesus heals this man. He doesn't do it the way the man thought, because in my mind, I'm like, Jesus is going to sit with him, going to wait for the water to get stirred, and then he's going to throw him in, right? He's going to be the first one in the water. But instead, Jesus simply says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. When I read this passage, I get a sense that the healing Jesus performs is physical, but also It's about the deep internal work of healing that addresses all the questions that this man is asking. God is not afraid of our deep questions. He's not afraid of the questions we wrestle with. He's not afraid of our hopelessness or our fear. He sees us. He says that we matter, that we are cared for, and with great compassion demonstrates his love for us. So a few years ago, I worked with a student. Her name was Amaya. Amaya would come to our campus ministry meetings, and she would sit in the back of this really large lecture room, and she would weep during worship and during the sermons. And then she would slip out right after the last song was over. And week after week, I would look up after the meeting to go talk to her, and she was gone. I knew something was up because she was always moved by what was happening in the room, but she didn't know how to engage anyone or even think about engaging Jesus. So as a good campus minister does, I tracked her down and I invited her to lunch. And Amaya said she kept coming because she knew that something special was happening in the room. She said the, in the room, it gave her hope that there was life that she had never experienced before. She wasn't a follower of Jesus, and she also didn't believe that Jesus saw her or cared for her. She had a lot of fear when she talked about not being able to hope. Amaya was afraid of also being disappointed. She, would con- she was convinced that, Jesus, that if Jesus really knew who she was, that he would have no interest in her whatsoever. She had taken to watching other people experience life and healing but not being able to want it for herself. So, like a good campus minister does, I said, well, let's see if that's true, right? Like, let's meet together once a week. Just give me four weeks. That's it. You don't have to meet with me the whole semester, but let's meet for four weeks. And I decided that we were going to read John 1 through 4 together. With every chapter, she saw the way that Jesus looked at people with compassion the way that he engaged them, the way that he went out of his way to actually see them. This was the game changer for her. I still have these very like vivid images of the day that we read John 4 together, right? We were reading about the Samaritan woman and Amaya just started weeping. She started weeping because she realized that Jesus sees her and cares for her and knows her present, her past and her future and still offers her living water. This was the hope that she needed. So whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I can assure you that Jesus sees you, that he notices you, and that he cares about you. He sees us right where we are, in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our junk, and he has great compassion on us. Now, I have to say that there is so much in this passage that during my prep, I was like, there's like four sermons here, right? Uh, and sometimes I try to do all four, but this time I said, I'm gonna stick to what I feel like the Lord's leading me to, right? One of those sermons that it would be fun to preach was one on waiting and hope, right? What does it mean to hope? Second, breaking the Sabbath, right? Like this raises a whole lot of questions about can a healing happen on the Sabbath, right? Uh, that for the sake of kingdom work, it can. And another on what to do when you're approached by the haters of this world. So while I was reading John 5, uh, I scratched my head often. Like, I, I seriously scratched my head. I think I picked it up from, like, cartoons or something as a child. But I, I'm like, what? what is this, right? I just couldn't understand why Jesus would have this man get up, pick up his mat, and then walk, Right? Why take the mat? When you've been a staple in the community for 38 years, people notice, they recognize the mat. I think the mat is probably a sign to the community that this man had had an encounter with Jesus, that he had been made whole, right? You might not recognize the man because he's like up and walking and doing stuff, but you recognize that mat. Right? You've seen it day after day for 38 years. I think the mat was also a physical sign of the internal healing that he experienced. What if the thing that accompanied us in our hopelessness is the thing that we carry with us as a sign of God's steadfast love for us? I often think that what God does with our hurts, our frustrations, our anxieties, our stories, our past, and our baggage that God uses that for our future story. I often wish that I didn't have the scars or remember the hard memories, um, that I didn't carry on the baggage of my life. And then I read about this man and what I assume is probably like this gross, filthy mat. It's the thing that connects him to his past. It's the thing that he used every day for 38 years. It's the thing that would remind him of his junk. But it will also be the thing that God continually uses to remind him and everyone else around him that Jesus sees him, Jesus cares for him, that Jesus came near and gave him exactly what he needed when he couldn't even muster the strength to ask for it. His mat is the marker that he's not who he was, and he's not where he used to be. It's a testimony to others that something miraculous has happened, but it's also a testimony to him that regardless of how long he's been sitting there and waiting on this mat, that God has not abandoned him. The man and the mat are all part of the testimony that God uses to point us and others back to him. So some of the most formational years of my life uh, were spent in a ministry that was preaching together on Friday nights, uh, preaching to one another using testimony. Uh, We would gather for a large group and the first chunk of our meeting together would be worship. And then it would be people testifying about what God is doing in and around them. And I went to college not as a first year, or I went to college as a first year not as a Christian, and ended up stumbling into this large group meeting where I was like, who are these people and why are they so excited about this, right? Like, I think they should be excited about the frat party, but instead they're here singing songs about this guy named Jesus, right? They would be preaching to one another in testimony, and I started to get glimpses of this Jesus who sees people and has compassion on them. We would gather in this room and it felt like people were carrying their mats. Others were sitting on their mats, afraid to hope. And they would point to the places where they've seen God show up, where they've seen God show up in their lives and they've seen God show up in in each other's lives. And they would say to each other, God sees you. You matter to God. God cares about you. And I felt like in my doubt and distress and in my depression and inability to hope that something could be different. I had this encounter with God. I saw the eyes of Jesus on me for the first time. That was the game changer, that whether healing came or not, that God had been answering the questions that I'm seen, that I matter, and that God loves me. It felt like it took a few years for me to climb out of depression but that crappy, filthy mat that I used to sit on has become my Ebenezer, right? It's become a sign for me that God shows up in the middle of mess and hopelessness and turns the terrible places of my life into praise. God shows up and God sees and interrupts our stories and gives us one that we never imagined could even be possible. So what's the thing that you're longing for? Where do you feel hopelessness the strongest in your life? What's on your map? Because this morning, I wanna remind you that God sees you, that God draws near to you, and that the work of healing that he wants to do to you and bring to your life will be good. It might not be What you want it to be. And I know that that sucks. Can I say that? Uh, But it will be a testimony for you and for all those that you encounter that God is with you and that He has not abandoned you or forsaken you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you go out of your way to see us that even when you ask us simple questions about what we want and what we need, and we happen to give you excuses, that you still respond with grace and compassion. Thank you that you see us, you care care for us, you love us. I pray that that would sink deep down into the core of who we are. That whether we're currently following you or not, that we would turn and be able to see that. And that for the places where we have deep hopelessness, that we would be open to you moving into those places. And that when we experience healing, it would be a testimony for others as well as for ourselves that you meet us in the midst of our jump. So God, would you remind us what it means to get up, to pick up our mats, and to walk? In Jesus' name.